that triathlon show for her antenna. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have part two of my interview with Professor Kerry McGauley. And this part is all about the female athlete and recent research on that topic that Kerry has been involved in. Uh, just as a reminder, we had part one of this interview uh, two weeks ago in episode 408. And that was all about Kerry's own training and uh, from the perspective of she's uh, a physiologist and an exercise scientist and uh, and she has a lot of knowledge about training and coaching. Uh, so how does she train? Because she was recently, she became the 713 world champion in her age group. She also won the British Middle Distance championships and the world triathlon long distance championships in ibiza uh, in may so basically the question is how does somebody with her knowledge kind of use that in and how does it influence her training and uh, yeah what does her training look like to achieve those uh, successes at an age group level um but uh this is part two this is about the female athlete and uh, it's we have practical takeaways, but we also have more of the uh, scientific side of things here. Uh, before we get into that, though, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Uh, they help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools, education, and a patented sweat test. Big news from the Ironman World Championship weekend in Nice is that Precision Fuel and Hydration have launched a new flow gel. This is a gel designed so that you no longer have to squeeze 8 to 10 gels into a bottle for your races. The flow gel will help you get 300 grams of carbs from one bottle or flask and it flows easily without adding water it's the perfect gel for the bike leg of a half or full distance race you can get 15 off your first precision fuel hydration order including any other products by using the code tts23 on precisionfuelhydration.com and thanks to form the form smart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens including splits pace stroke rate and heart rate this means that you can execute your swim workouts better and get a better idea of your ability to hold certain paces and stroke rates and on your understand when and why you start to slow down is it because you drop your stroke rate or just your efficiency goes down and your stroke rate maybe even goes up to compensate uh, the best thing is that you can easily see and interpret this in real time in the session uh, so it's actually actionable data and it can help you uh, correct things right then and there and also especially if you're swimming solo it they add a lot more fun and engagement to swim training you can get 15 percent off the goggles with the code tts15 on forumswim.com for slash tts now, without any further ado, here's part two of my interview with Professor Kerry McGauley. I guess that that's a good segue into the uh, the other big topic that I want to discuss. Uh, actually, next in our list is the uh, biopsychosocial model, but I think we, we covered it in enough detail, uh, both explicitly but also implicitly through how you described your training process, which uh, which kind of follows that. So, so if if you're good with it, let's move on to the some questions and topics around the female athlete. Yeah, sounds good. All right, so so let's start with if you can give an introduction or overview of the work that you've done in in this area. Yeah, because I guess at the beginning I didn't really mention that at all, but it, it's actually been quite recent, I would say. Um, and yeah, I, I employed um, a Finnish. Are you Finnish? I am Finnish, Swedish speaking Finn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I employed a, a Finnish researcher as a postdoc. Um, I don't know, it was probably about five years ago when I was directing the, the research center, uh, Johanna Ichalainen. Um, and she came across 
and she was really into kind of menstrual cycle physiology and yeah um kind of female athlete research so that kind of piqued my interest and I started chatting to her and we've collaborated on a few projects um since then as well and kind of co-authored a few papers so I guess my interest started with thinking about well well you know that was in the the days where it started to get popular so let's say five years ago and it was kind of all of a sudden in the last two or three years it's become like really a lot more popular and well known that actually we don't have very much research on this whatsoever and we don't really know anything about female athlete physiology specifically at all and we're not really educating coaches and athletes either in in a really good way so like um my interest first started with with kind of my more physiology background um thinking about how the hormonal cycles menstrual cycles might affect um i guess training and adaptations um and things that we're talking about as well like do we need to like kind of periodize and work around that in terms of recovery and fatigue and so on and where where can we get the most out of our training so i started to read into that and realized that it was all very hazy and the research wasn't very um well controlled and the story wasn't particularly clear cut because there, there, at that time there was kind of just general chatter um about you know doing more hit and strength training in the follicular phase in that kind of first half of the month and then in that second half of the month was kind of being termed catabolic and there you should just do your kind of recovery and long slow distance kind of stuff and actually if you sort of look at the evidence it's not very strong for that whatsoever uh, maybe sort of in strength training there's a little bit more evidence for that kind of periodization approach a little bit but probably not strong enough that we should really be doing that um strictly with everybody all the time certainly not but anyway um so it kind of came from this physiology kind of perspective and then I was talking a lot to our athletes I was like out on camp with them and stuff and and you know I'd train with the cross-country skiers like when they're running and biking not when not when they're skiing um and you know get talking to them and and I'd kind of start to realize that actually they really didn't know very much at all but actually neither did I really and then it kind of occurred to me that we're not really taught it and there's not much chatter about it um, so then there was a paper that came out by Gurostrom Solli and Urban Sandback and, and the guys over in Norway um, that had looked at kind of um, experiences of cross-country skiers and biathletes, uh, elite female athletes, um, and their kind of knowledge and symptoms and stuff around the menstrual cycle. So we started to look at this in, in our Swedish elite cross-country skiers and biathletes. And, and it's where I, I wouldn't really call myself a physiologist anymore at all because I've just become so so much broader than that and, and it kind of it, it became quite obvious quickly that we just needed to actually raise awareness and educate and get these kind of athletes and coaches communicating about this so we started to do some research around that and I employed a, a research assistant who's now uh, one of my PhD students um, and it's really nice because she she was a coach of the cross-country ski development team and now she's embedded with the cross-country ski federation and her PhD is kind of across with the federation and and uh, with the university um but it, it's gone from ha- being an idea of being very physiological based to actually being very educational based and using pedagogical models and things and interventions to improve communication and knowledge um in those athletes and coaches and what you might need to do with younger athletes for example and we've even branched out where it's a bit broader um, including boys and looking at kind of hormonal and other health responses to their kind of training. But, but yeah, to, to stick with it. So that's kind of how that evolved. And then um, 
I've just recently published a paper about menstrual health literacy that kind of brings all of that together. It's, it was kind of an invited review or commentary that I've written with um, a few co-authors. Um, and that just talks about the fact that, yeah, I guess our, again, knowledge and communication is poor from an athlete perspective, a coach perspective, a practitioner perspective, um, and kind of why that is, and also recommendations of what we can do about it and what resources are out there um, that are published by kind of federations or available for use. Um, So there's that whole kind of area that I'm working on. Um, And then we've just recently published as well a a paper um, about mother athletes so this, I find this quite fascinating, which is like, you know, even as somebody who doesn't have children or have, have that kind of challenge in my own life, but I find it really fascinating from, I guess, from the lack of equality that there is um, around opportunities for parenting if you're a woman or a man and, a, and a, as an elite athlete, um, because obviously female athletes are the ones that have to get pregnant and go through that process. And there's no avoiding that kind of physical process. But there's lots of other factors where they're not supported. They can lose their sponsorship. They can lose their job, essentially. Uh, They lose their place on the team. Um, And they also have kind of maternal instincts that makes it difficult afterwards to balance um, travel and racing and training and everything that they need to do. Um, So, yeah, in, in that paper... Uh, we we interviewed so it's a qualitative study and we interviewed like Norwegian and Swedish elite cross-country skiers um, and through those interviews we identified kind of four key challenges um, for uh, uh, and we interviewed current mother athletes or former mother athletes or current athletes that don't have children but you know have a plan to create a family or have children in the future so anybody that didn't want children or wasn't thinking about that or interested in that were, was excluded from the study. But basically the, the four kind of, I just found this really interesting because I think from a social perspective, this is really important. And from policymaking perspective, it's really important. Um, and it's also relevant, you know, to age groupers or people that aren't supported by federations to raise awareness of these are the things that we need to kind of factor in. But there was, there was the, the first challenge was kind of this timing issue of, uh, most elite endurance athletes oftentimes are kind of reaching the peak of their career and their performance um, at the same time that they're probably needing to um, have children from a kind of safety perspective or an age perspective. So sort of 30 to 35 kind of window is is that clash. So they have that kind of dilemma to deal with. Um, and then there's that dilemma or, or challenge of how to train safely through pregnancy if they were to become pregnant, um, while also trying to maintain fitness or minimize like damage control in terms of how much fitness they lose. And there's obviously, there's really nice papers coming out now, especially with runners. Um, so Trent Stellingworth's group has, has recently published a, a paper with, um, elite runners in Canada showing that, you know, mother athletes are, are coming back and exceeding their previous performance levels. Um, and managing to train a lot as well through pregnancy and quite soon again, postpartum. And again, that's quite individual. And obviously you need to kind of prioritize doing things safely, but, but, but there's a lot of breaking down barriers in terms of what women can do through pregnancy as athletes and and how they can come back after it. Um, And then there were a couple of other, there were these other kind of two challenges. One was around um, 
whether the athlete w- w- was kind of gaining support from their club or team or federation versus like losing their place on the team. And that just wasn't talked about. That was just purely because there was a lack of policy and maybe equality and fairness around that process of becoming pregnant. And whereas a male athlete could become a parent and be almost untouched and nothing happens to him because he just carries on as was, um, a female athlete can can lose her entire career. So that seems, yeah, in this day and age, just completely outrageous if you kind of think of it in that way. Um, and then there's the challenges of once you've got a child and how to manage that and how to be a good, you know, there was a kind of challenge for them in terms of being a good mother or a world-class mother and a world-class athlete because, you know, these people are type A, overachieving, like ambitious type who also can't just be an Olympic gold medalist that, at cross-country skiing, they also need to be that in mothering as well um, and and kind of want to perform on, on that um, stage. So I just found that interesting because it's not my background at all. You know, that that became more sociology, I would say. Um, so, so yeah, but um, I think it was a really important that, 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 fi- that final That final point about combining the actual parenting with then returning to sport for the athletes that choose to do so, did you find any... Like the athletes that were successful in that, what were some common denominators or, or keys to highlight? Support structures. So parents was a big one, having parents close by, parents of the mother or the father, like so grandparents of the child um, to look after them was a key one. Um, and having support from the team as well, uh, allowing them to take babies on training camps to races and being flexible around those kind of things allowing them to not go on training camps and stay at home and do a training camp from home instead. So I would say support from the federations and su- like support from the family structure was probably the key one. Yeah. Um, and then I guess a little bit the mindset and different athletes went about that in a different way. Like some, one of, one of the athletes reported that she didn't feel good. She felt okay about going away, leaving her child like in an organized fashion being looked after but but then when she was at home, she could be really focused, you know, and actually have a lot more time than other parents might have because, you know, she's not out in an office from eight in the morning till five in the evening. Um, she can drop them off at daycare, go training, pick them up at daycare and maybe have the whole afternoon with them, for example. Um, and then others just found it to be really difficult and then chose to not go on camp and chose to stay at home and preferred to do it that way. Um, but definitely the the support structures, I think, was the main thing that stuck out there from different organizations or perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, you were involved in a study looking back to the menstrual cycle a little bit, where you looked at the responses to uh, incremental to an incremental running test based on the phase of the menstrual cycle. So, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and that was one of the Finnish studies that I got on board with with Johanna that I mentioned earlier, um, and I came into that a little bit later on and worked with the kind of data analysis interpretation and kind of the write-up. So I wasn't involved with the design phase of that. Um, but in that study, uh, it, it wasn't with athletes, actually. That was kind of just with healthy women uh, who were somewhat recreational um, because it was more a yeah, mechanistic kind of study looking at the responses, like you said, through the phases of the menstrual cycle. So in that study, there were like, I think there were 16 eumenorrheic women so normally menstruating women who are having regular menstrual cycles 
Uh, and there was also a, a group, I think there were 12 in the, the other group who were hormonal contraceptive users. So it was just looking like that. It wasn't a comparison of those. It was just having those two different populations in one and the same study to see um, how each population responded. Um, and basically what was done was that those individuals were tested, like you mentioned, at four clear phases throughout the menstrual cycle in the eumenorrheic group. So that group were, were tested in that bleeding phase. So these are really logistically difficult studies to do because as soon as you get your first day of bleed, you have to kind of, as a, as a participant in the study, you have to, you know, make a phone call or send a text message to the to the uh, researchers and say, right, I just started my period. I need to get in the lab like kind of soon. <laughs> and that needs to happen within, you know, a couple of days. Um, so they're, they're logistically difficult to do. But yeah, one one test was done in the bleed phase. And then from that bleed phase, you can then, calculate the other phases so the the next test was done in the mid follicular so the mid portion of that first half of the menstrual cycle um they were also tested in the ovulatory phase so kind of in the middle of the menstrual cycle and then in the mid luteal phase so halfway through the second half of the, the cycle because the hormonal profiles in those kind of four distinct time points are quite different in terms of the estrogen and progesterone levels. So that's where it's been considered that, you know, we're going to have different responses physiologically and also performance-wise. Um, but that particular study showed that there was no difference. And that's I think that's really important for a few different reasons. So, so the things, that it, like you said, it was an incremental test. So they came in and they measured, you know, at those four time points, they measured like VO2 and blood lactate responses at, aerobic and anaerobic threshold so two kind of turn points um they also measured absolute and relative vo2 peak um it was all done in running so it was max maximal running speed on that test and then the maximal running time um and then also heart like maximal heart rate so standard typical um physiological responses to an incremental test were measured and none of those measures differed within each of the two different groups from time point to time point. So basically the conclusion is that there's no effect of phase or time point within the menstrual cycle in those incremental test outcomes variables. Um, and I know that there's a group in Norway who have got a large project, this Fendura project, female athlete project. And I was just at a conference in Paris in the summer and watched a presentation where they've done something quite similar, uh, but they've repeated it. You know, it's never that great to just, we just went in and did a, a snapshot in one menstrual cycle for each participant. But in this study in Norway, they've repeated that over, I think it's three menstrual cycles and looked at, you know, is this a consistent response? Re is there really no difference from like um, phase to phase within the menstrual cycle? And, and they saw similar findings that there's no, you know, difference across the menstrual cycle in these kind of typical responses. Um, and that was the same for the contraceptive, hormonal contraceptive um, pill users as well in our particular study. Um, and just to kind of summarize why that's important, I think, is because like lots of studies, lots of scientific sports science studies will have in the method section that women were excluded because of the complex nature of their hormonal cycles, yada, yada, yada. And it just means that we don't have 
much data on, you know, we, we just exclude women from lots of our studies, especially physiological based studies, because there's this kind of perception that uh, our physiology and our performance change throughout the cycle when there really isn't any good evidence of that. Sure, our hormones do change, but does that have an impact on other variables? Um, from our study, it doesn't seem to show that it does. So, I mean, I guess from a practical application for coaches, for triathletes, um, does it really matter where in the cycle you do an FTP test, for example, if that's something that you're regularly using? Um, from that paper that we wrote and from the study in the Norway group, probably not, probably doesn't matter. And I think that if you kind of zoom out and think about it, there's so many other things that affect performance probably to a greater degree in both men and women. And that's what frustrates me about the exclusion of women from studies because no one's saying that men should be excluded because they vary from day to day for all these various reasons about how they're eating, how they're sleeping, what's going on at home in their relationship, like how tired they are from work. They're all human variables that affect physiology and performance outcomes but we don't care about them i think we've like inflated the the effect of menstrual cycle hormones more than maybe we need to yeah no that's a, a great summary and uh then another study that uh, that you that was done by the same group i think the F finland based group was about runners and comparing uh amenorrheic with eumenorrheic uh runners i think they were quite young were they teenagers but anyway they the comparison was around how many injuries they sustained and and improvement in running performance across a whole year or a season so can you discuss that a little bit yeah like you said i think they were uh the average age was around 20 19 and a half 20 years old uh, and these were athletes uh, they did have a control group of non-athletes as well in that study and it was a similar scenario that that was another study that I worked on with Johanna Ichalainen and her group in Finland, like you say, that I wasn't involved in the design but came on board a bit later with the analysis and interpretation write-up and so on. Um, so it was Finnish runners um, and there were 13 of them and they were kind of middle distance, 800 metre to 5,000 metre runners. Um, and yeah, and I think they come in the top five in kind of the nationals. That was kind of the level. So they were, you know, considered very good sort of elite in terms of Scandinavian terminology um, runners. And so there were 13 of these athletes and there were eight controls, but I don't think we'll focus on them because what they did with that athlete group, like you said there, they assessed whether they were amenorrheic or eumenorrheic. Um, and they had eight. Well, it, that, that was like an outcome. It wasn't, um, an inclusion criteria, it turned out that eight of those of those 13 runners, so more than half of those athletes were amenorrheic, which means that they have irregular or, or no actual clear menstrual cycle. Um, and five were eumenorrheic. And the amenorrheic group, um, they had a higher score on the low energy availability um, questionnaire, so this leaf coup questionnaire. They also had lower body mass and kind of fat mass, relative fat mass, mass percentage and lower BMI. So you had these kind of characteristics um, that in terms of body mass, fat mass might be considered to be um, very useful for running. But then you've got to balance that up. And we have this problem with cross-country skiing as well, obviously, any kind of weight-bearing sports, you've got to balance that up with health and performance as well. 
Um, so this was quite a good, I guess, example of showing that, yeah, this group is, is lighter and has got a, a lower relative fat mass, but actually they're getting more injured, they're able to run less and they're performing worse, um, which obviously isn't a good thing. And probably their long-term health outcomes are not good either. So like you said, the, that, that um, eumenorrheic group um, had fewer injuries which is probably that why that they were able to accumulate more running distance. And I guess importantly, that total annual running distance was positively related to changes in performance. So it, it was a, these athletes were tracked over a year and, that, um, and we used IAF points um, as a measure of performance. And that was the key outcome was that um, because of being able to accumulate more training volume, because of being healthy for longer, um, performance was like positively impacted. So it's just another, it, I mean, that's not necessarily new, but I mean, in this particular circumstance, it was good information and, and there's a lot more like detailed data in there. But basically, you know, being amenorrheic is a kind of a warning f flag and it's why it's so important to have to balance energy intake or energy availability uh, with body mass and, and health outcomes. And, and like I said to you, like certainly in Scandinavia, in Norway and Sweden, um, with our cross country skiers now in both of those countries, like specific females, female athletes have been stopped from racing because their like body composition numbers are too low in terms of their fat mass, um, or their bone mineral density. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to make, you need to kind of create some kind of like passport for that so that you accumulate a bit of a database and a baseline for people because everybody is different and it's difficult to know um, what what exactly is healthy and unhealthy. But I think we've got enough information to kind of know when certain athletes are, yeah, into an unhealthy state and you need to stop them from racing at that time point or they, whether you need to, they have been stopped by certain federations. Um to get healthy again before they're allowed to race again. So I think they're just, yeah. they're just important issues, aren't they? But yeah. difficult and to I, measure. I, yeah, that, I guess that's where uh, female athletes do have an advantage that uh, the menstrual cycle can be a very clear signal that, okay, something's not right, that male athletes don't have because they can have the same issues with low energy availability and it can eventually lead to the same poor health and performance outcomes. But But there's not the same... Um, same level of, of clarity, I guess, in, in, or it's not as, as evident when it happens. It can be in female athletes. Not to say that it's a, a, a light switch is not, but, but, but obviously at some point you get to that point where, where something changes in the menstrual cycle and it, it is clearer than the changes that might happen in male athletes. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a signal. Like you say, it's not, it's not clear cut, but it's a signal and it's a useful signal. And it's quite funny because that, that paper, the Martina Huck at the paper, one of my PhD students who I, who I supervise, the title of that paper, and it was the one that I mentioned about where, um, well, I did, I didn't really talk about the details of it, but we had kind of focus groups and we looked at kind of, um, communication in, coaches and athletes about the menstrual cycle and, and we we might talk about that i'm not too sure but but the point that i was going to say there is the title of that paper i'm not sure if you've seen it but it's like it's a quote from one of the interviews that we had and it was one of the athletes her quoting what she'd been told by a coach during her career and it's um 
do elite sport first, get your period later. Um, and that's really scary, isn't it? Because that's kind of, in these weight bearing sports, cross country skiing, running, uh, even like road cycling, plenty of other sports, triathlon as well. Um, that that's kind of a bit a bit the tr- tradition or the understanding that it's uh, and we had other comments in that interview study as well things like them saying I was told by my coach that if I had my period I wasn't training hard enough um, and these are really scary kind of scenarios because that's nonsense it's not true um, you can be healthy and happy having your periods and be the best in the world like th- th- there's evidence of that there's no two ways about that but if coaches old school coaches are kind of perpetuating these kind of ideas to young influential people that aren't being taught any differently because there's nowhere in our curriculum either in schools in athletics in in kind of our athlete development programs to really educate female athletes about hormonal cycles menstrual cycles hormonal contraception all of this stuff and that's what needs to change but yeah, and that's what I found most insightful about that paper that we wrote was just the level of understanding. And these these were senior uh, senior cross country skiers in the Swedish team who had multiple world championship, Olympic gold medals between them at senior level, and that was like the level of things that they'd experienced in their careers. So these are not, and this is in a very these are in very forward thinking apparently um, kind of countries. You know, this isn't like outback coaching and athletes. So, yeah, I was quite shocked. Yeah, that is that is shocking. I, I did want to finish on on that paper and maybe get yeah get a summary of some of the conclusions really that that you would take from that and that you could inform all of us about like both things that you yeah basically the the one of the main points that you wanted to lift uh, to raise with that paper was uh, what are the barriers to athlete coach communication around the menstrual cycle and then just uh i guess literacy around the menstrual cycle so so on those topics what are some key points that you that you would uh want to convey to the listeners yeah and that that was kind of like the, i guess the main point of that study as well it's just that we kind of got out all these other information that kind of blew us away a little bit but that so that was like i said it was a, there were 13 elite female cross-country skiers in that paper all from sweden uh, and they were not so yet they were kind of mid 20s so they were in in their kind of careers they had quite a bit of experience but we also included their coaches in that paper as well so there were eight coaches uh, two were women and six were men just by way of who's employed in those positions um, and we kind of did a survey looking at their sort of educational backgrounds um, and they're also their menstrual cycle knowledge so it's kind of a bit of a, a kind of test uh, just basic questions about the menstrual cycle that were either kind of right or wrong answers um, and we looked at the coach athlete relationships as well because I think that's really important because without knowing how good they are you can't really sort of assess how good the communication is. If, if they've got terrible relationships then the communication is going to be bad regardless but the the outcomes on the coach athlete relationship measures were really high like they were really good scores like eight out of ten plus I think so I don't think you could conclude that the communication is poor because of poor coach actually athlete relationships because that wasn't the case um, and then we sort of did an intervention a kind of education session just a one-off online with a gynecologist who works in sort of elite sports she works for the Swedish Olympic Committee um, and then we had like focus group discussions and we had the athletes on their own so they felt that they could talk in a certain way without the coaches around and then we had kind of interactive coach plus athlete 
focus group discussions so that they'd learn a little bit more about each other's perspectives. Um, so it was kind of interventional, but also um, trying to assess the state of play. But again, we it was qualitative uh, surveys and interviews, and we used like thematic analysis and identified, yeah, like you just said, these three main barriers to communication around menstrual cycle type of issues. Um, and the first one was knowledge. Basically, they didn't have any formal knowledge, neither the, really the coaches or the athletes. And that's kind of what I was alluding to before that, you know, we're not taught about this stuff particularly well. It's not like a formal part of any coach education program that I've been involved in. And I've been, I've, I've done a lot of like coaching badges as a coach myself, but I've also, I'm also a tutor or, um, like a teacher on numerous like high quite high level coaching programs and it doesn't really come up at all um so the knowledge is poor which isn't that surprising uh plus by the way like it's not only the fault of that like we don't have that much good information like the, the, the research doesn't really exist so our general knowledge isn't great either in this space so that's where the first starting point needs to be that we need more good quality research um and then the other uh, one of the other barriers was interpersonal relationships. And I, I just mentioned that the coach-athlete relationships were good, but it was more about these kind of taboos and age gaps and maybe the coach being a man. Like there were lots of different things, it, but it was mostly around the fact that the, 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 the athletes or the women, the girls, didn't really feel comfortable talking about periods and menstrual cycles to anybody, regardless of who it was, um, because it's just kind of socialized in that way to be taboo or not really talked about um yeah and maybe that kind of like uh, uh, that kind of idea a bit about weakness as well is kind of like being quite stoic and not complaining about stuff it's just kind of hardening up kind of thing um and then the other barrier was kind of structural which is more like you know you go on we'll go on training camps and there might be meetings between the coaches and the athletes daily uh, and, but and they'll talk about their training variables. They'll talk about their heart rate and they'll talk about maybe their like session RPEs and stuff. But that it, those questions around the menstrual cycle just don't come up. There's no place for them. You know, they might have sessions with a nutritionist. They'll have sessions with a psychologist, but nowhere in the, in the structure of being in an elite sport federation, is there a female physiologist to go and have discussions with about these um, issues um and structurally within like i said again coaching programs it, it doesn't come up so yeah we just kind of created a, a bit of a model in that paper to try to improve all of those things and then that's where that menstrual health literacy paper that i wrote about is quite connected to that as well with recommendations of what we can do um and like i said the first step is to create more robust reliable knowledge and that has to come from research but then it's really that step of transferring the knowledge into practice because we have accumulated some amount of knowledge now, but there's still that big gap. Um, and now we talk about, because I work like in some consultancy with another a company, and we talk now about um, having a need to employ kind of female physiologist specialists as part of the multidisciplinary team. And that hasn't, you know, traditionally been been kind of a factor. Or not only physiologists, maybe female performance experts that deal with these kind of and you know in a lot of cases you might not need to do very much um but at least raise awareness and there are lots of things that you can do in terms of tracking cycles and building up a database per individual just as you would do for all of the data that you would collect in any other way related to training and performance yeah 
No, that's that's great. And is there any other, whether it's from research or just from um, experience, anecdotal knowledge, any other advice that you would give to, especially to uh, to female listeners, but also to coaches of female athletes or even partners that yeah that we haven't talked about so far. I think just um, like get to know your body uh, and like I just said at the end there, like track it like you would with any other variable. Cause I can say that personally, since working in this space, I've like accumulated so much more information and knowledge about my own body and my own cycles. And when I say track it, you, you don't even need to use an app, but if that's easy for you, if that's the way you like to work, do that. I, I'm a bit old school in a lot of things. Like I've got like this calendar, uh, and, I always buy a calendar each year where I really like like the pictures. So it just kind of like inspires me, motivates me a bit. And I always mark down like the first day, how long my period lasts, how heavy the bleed is, how much it's affected me um, and like what the symptoms might be. Um, And just by sort of tracking yourself and thinking and being aware and thinking, right, how do I feel in that sort of just premenstrual phase versus in my bleed phase versus in that you know what's supposed to be a bit of an anabolic uh, follicular into ovulation phase do i feel shitty at, at some particular point or, and don't make stuff up don't like convince yourself that you do because you're pre because that that's the thing we're kind of drilled into us that oh she's premenstrual therefore you know she's supposed to be in a bad mood and feel bloated and crappy and it's kind of like that thing of like perpetuating a myth and then if you're told that it it kind of like manifests in reality whereas if you try and be completely clean and objective about it um yeah I feel a bit rough but it's fine I can still go training and I like I still get the enjoyment out of being with my friends or getting a training impact whereas for me some month and every month varies as well some months I might have a a day where I literally and it might be that other things get on top of you as well that you you're not really measuring but it might just be that you know one day it's just all too much you get your period work's been a nightmare I don't know you've fallen out with somebody this that and the other's happened and it's just like I just need to give myself a break I'm not doing that Saturday session that I planned I can't face going to the pool with blood I just it's just too much my back's killing me I've got stomach cramps do you know what I mean like and you just kind of deal with that and you don't have to think it's going to be like this every month I have to like destroy my program or everything's going to get muddled up it might only happen that one-off occasion but it's just like sucking it up, dealing with it, like sit on the sofa that day, just chill out and like make up for it. Like you'll be back in one day or two. Like we always get kind of panicky. Like, oh my God, I can't fulfill my session. It's fine. like tomorrow you'll be absolutely fine. Like have a good night's sleep. You'll feel great again. And you'll be so pumped to do a great session on Sunday. And, and that's it. It's finished, done. And then like, see what happens. So just accumulate information, build up a database, see what your general like symptoms are from month to month, and then deal with any sort of extreme outlier symptoms if they occur. If they don't, don't make them up. Like, and some, some athletes like never have anything to worry about. Nothing. They don't really get any symptoms and that's fine. Other athletes have like quite extreme blood losses every single month and a lot of pain. So that's good for coaches to know as well, like especially male coaches who, you know, just have a lot, naturally a lot less knowledge and awareness of that because they, they don't even have themselves as a case study. But even us, we've only got one case study. And that, that, that actually came out with the female coaches. They were like, yeah, maybe I'm a little bit more equipped than a male coach, but not really. All I've got is 
n equals one more than what they've got, it doesn't mean that I know every possible scenario for every athlete. I only know what I've ever felt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. This time I can I can say that I understand what you mean. The, the, the time you asked before, I I could probably should say no. I don't I don't know exactly what you mean because I haven't gone through it. Um, but yeah, of course. Um, I I I I get what you're saying and uh, and try to. I guess uh, understand it even though without the experience. Um, it's it's a great answer, and and I think one one thing that I don't know what your thoughts are, but I what I tend to see sometimes is that is another thing is to be kind of selective with where you get your information from. Like get it from people like you. I had Kelly McNulty on the podcast; he's really knowledgeable. And uh, but there there is also a lot of. I guess creating headlines from maybe incorrect understanding of what is actually known, and uh, even to some extent, you mentioned apps. I think to some extent, an Excel spreadsheet can be better than an app because an app wants to make itself useful. It wants to almost make an intervention when it might not be the right intervention for the individual. So, so I'm a little bit skeptical about some of the apps, not all of them, but some some of them have a little bit. They want to try to like in, intervene when they might not need to so yeah the, uh, getting having the right sources of information i think is another thing that is important because uh, it has been and it is maybe to some extent still a little bit of a wild west with with the information that is out there yeah i agree and yeah kelly mcnulty like you say is a, is a great person to kind of go to and she um through her phd in any case she was kind of like driving that period of the period kind of instagram twitter account i don't know if she's kind of still on top of that but um Kirsty Elliott Sale, who was one of her supervisors, is also kind of a bit of a Bible on this topic as well. But now there's like starting to be quite a few, I guess, initiatives um, to roll out this kind of education, um, menstrual health literacy through companies that, like you say, some of them can be a disaster, but like then others, if you just kind of look into who's delivering it. So like the Wellness HQ, I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, but Emma no, Ross is involved with them and she was one of the she was head of physiology at the English Institute of Sport for quite a while and she's got a PhD in physiology so you know you kind of look to reliable people who've got proper qualifications and experience and if they've branched out and are running businesses and delivering so um, yeah I'm just starting some work now with um, Orico who are a kind of sports performance support company um, and they've got a big female athlete um, arm and project that's run by Georgie Bruenvels who I'll start to work with and Charlie Pedler and like Charlie's a professor Georgie's a senior researcher I've got my background you know they're really that's that's a reliable group of people giving out reliable kind of information so I think but but lots of different groups are trying and it, it'll take a lot of different groups as well because not one person can solve this whole huge problem but like you say you need to analyze who's delivering that information and make sure that they're reliable. The same as you should with nutrition, with any other like training advice, you know, everyone wants to tell you how to structure your training, how to eat and every other topic that that's out there. So it's just the same as that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's move into the rapid fire questions. Take one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? I'm going to say something slightly off piste because it'd be nice to have something that hasn't come up before um the great swim by gavin mortimer i don't know if it has come up actually but um it it's, has not no i'm pretty sure it hasn't yeah 
it's great. It's so inspirational and a little bit of an extension from the female athlete kind of topic, but it's the story of like four American swimmers in 1926 um, battling to become like the first woman to uh, swim the English Channel, which is quite a famous, you know, distant swim between England and France. Um, and it's just amazing because 1926, and you think how long ago that was and the circumstances they would have lived in, even if they were kind of wealthy American women. Um, but it's unbelievable. And then the story beyond that's quite unbelievable as well, because the, the woman that did do it, like she held that record for, I can't like the record overall men and women for, I think at least 30 more years or something. So I like yeah. the fact that that, that record has been held by a woman for a lot of history. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And, uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Yeah, I'm not too sure about the definition of habit. I, I kind of thought about this because you, you sent me these ones. And like the most important thing for me for achieving things is is commitment. Like I don't I don't know if it's a habit, it's more a characteristic maybe, but I think when you decide something, follow through on it. Like, yeah, decide something and follow through on it is kind of my habit. I think that helps me. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, I think everybody listening to this podcast knows that I'm not really a stickler for definitions in these questions and <laughs> also not with the one sentence answer. So, so it's all good. And uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? I don't really have heroes like in sport. So I thought about this as well. And it's, it's basically my friends. And it's mainly like, from an athletic perspective, it's my female friends who are better than me. I've got I'm surrounded by better athletes than me like unbelievable athletes and they really inspire me and always have um yeah so it's not I wouldn't say it's one famous athlete I'm not going to say Christian Blumenfeld or something it's the people close yeah. to home yeah nice one and uh finally where can uh listeners follow you and uh keep up to date with uh, what you're doing um yeah I have uh, like my name's quite uncommon so I have uh, a Twitter handle uh, have an Instagram handle, I guess those kind of places. Um, and then yeah, have an email address through my work. So if people have got anything specific that they want, but yeah, like I guess Instagram and, uh, and Twitter. And I think it's just Kerry McGawley. Yeah. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Kerry. It's been really great to have this chat, uh, and, uh, hope that, uh, listeners have enjoyed it and hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks for having me on. I hope that you enjoyed this second part of the interview with Kerry. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and we have quite a number of links to different papers and uh, other resources. Uh, one link that is well worth checking out if you want to see actually quite a lot of research gathered in one place is the Fendura Project website that we mentioned. And of course, we have links to all of the uh, papers that we discussed in more detail that Kerry was directly involved in. And uh, I believe all of these papers are full text Next, um, I'm recording this outro a little bit later, but uh, from memory, uh, I think that all of them are op open access, full text, so, so that you can actually read the entire papers, which is always nice. Uh, I want to once again remind you of the training camp that we have coming up in April 2024 in Mallorca. And uh, I'm just going to read a very short but uh, enthusiastic and, uh, and I would say accurate testimonial about the camp. And you can check out more of them to see what other participants have had to say on our website. Uh, but this uh, testimonial is, quote, incredible island, a communicative, nice 
guys and professional coaches and guides fantastic group of people end quote and uh, i believe this hits most of the key points of a successful training camp so i'm, I'm glad that we got this one and uh, i can assure you that uh, the other key points like food and facilities are also on point so if you're interested about uh, this and in this camp check out the web page on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash mallorca and follow the instructions there to register or even me directly on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and finally big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com if you're looking for electrolytes and fueling products i would highly recommend trying them out you can use their free fuel and hydration planner or even a free video consultation with the team to prepare your race strategy and don't forget to take 15 percent off your first order with the code tts23 and thank you to Form that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate and heart rate and advanced post-swim analysis. And use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim goggles. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.